join us on the very first day of Oxford's busiest term. Before starting, I would like to thank those institutions and people without whom this project would not have been possible. The Welcome Institution of Strategic Support Grants and the John Fell Fund for kindly supporting the project, the Queen's College for offering such a wonderful venue for us to gather in for our discussions, and Dr. Artist Owen Kelleher for creating a logo that captures both the directness and the complexity of the issues that we will explore in these meetings. My gratitude goes also to all the colleagues in the UK and abroad who have supported my project in various ways. A special thanks to Martin McLaughlin, who is in the public today, for his invaluable and continued mentorship, to Nicola Gardini for inspiring my academic and artistic journey, and to Laurie Maguire for pointing out new directions. Thank you also to Madalena Kublak for accepting my invitation to co-host this event. Madalena is an oncology registrar in a London hospital. As stated in the program, please note that this seminar will be recorded and made available on the university's podcast website and Apple Podcast. We will also circulate a piece of paper uh, on which you can write down your name and email address if, if you would like to be added to the mailing list. I now have the pleasure and indeed the honor to introduce today's speaker, Charles Bontra, Professor of Translational Medicine at the National Department of Medicine, University of Oxford. Professor Bontra is co-director of the Oxford Martin Program on Affordable Medicines and has been made Oxford's new Pro Vice Chancellor for Innovation. Charles has been indeed a pioneer as well as an innovator in the discovery of new drugs for many cancer, metabolic and neuropsychiatric diseases, setting up a cutting-edge ecosystem for drug discovery at Oxford. In addition to his eminent academic profile, Charles has given more than 300 invited lectures across the world. Boncha is an expert on several governmental and charitable research funding bodies, as well as an advisor for many biotech and pharma drug discovery programs. In 2012, he was voted one of the top innovators in the industry. I really thought that there could be no one more appropriate than Charles to inaugurate a seminar series that encourages us to rethink and perhaps even reinvent our concepts of both illness and translation. What do medicine and translation have in common? In what sense and to what extent is translation used in contexts as different as the transfer of meaning from one uh, language or medium to the other, the concept of knowledge translation and the process of protein synthesis? How will the advanced understanding of translation help us advance in literary and linguistic studies as well as in clinical research? In today's talk, Charles Bontra will tackle this question from the perspective on a, of an Oxford chief, chief scientist, expert consultant and lead researcher concerned both with sustainable scientific advancement and with ethics. He will explain to us why we are not good at translating lab science into new medicine for patients and will suggest which measures we can take in order to improve translation. So please, Join me in welcoming Charles Bonica.
ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Thank you very much for coming. Um, it's nice of you to give up your evenings to listen to me. So the title I gave this talk was We Are Not Very Good at Translating Lab Science or Bench Science into New Medicine Applications. So when I think of translation, I think of maybe at least three definitions. Um, we talk about translating messenger RNA into new proteins. I'm not going to talk about that this evening. We also talk about uh, taking lab science, bench science that we do in cells or tissues or organs or animals, and translating that into the clinic. So showing that what we learn in animals or in cellular assays also works in humans in the clinic, in either healthy individuals or patients. We talk about that as translating science from the bench to the bedside. People also talk about translating knowledge and creating benefit for industry, creating benefit for society, creating benefit for the economy. So we, that could be in the form of creating new companies, new jobs, helping the local economy, etc., etc. And Peter's a maestro at that. So I will talk about these last two. So in terms of drug discovery, let me just share with you what I worry about. I worry that as a community, so when I say a community, I mean us as academic scientists, but also I mean scientists working inside biotechs or scientists working inside pharmaceutical companies. We as a community are not producing enough new medicines. I also worry that when we do produce a new medicine, frankly, it is becoming increasingly unaffordable. I also worry that in biomedical research, there is massive Many academic labs, many industry labs, they all work on the same few ideas in parallel and in sequence. And most of those ideas are destined for failure. And I also worry that when I talk to my colleagues in industry, they say that 50, 60, 70% of academic literature they cannot reproduce. These are major problems. Let me kick off, just think about what do patients, what do patients carers, what do relatives, what do healthcare providers expect from us? You know, they fund our research, they fund it not that people like me can produce papers and become more famous, that's not the intention, they, they are giving us funding because they want us to help patients, help society. Now, what do they expect from us? Now, I think what they want is they want more novel medicines. They want more effective medicines. They want more affordable medicines. And they want them quickly. Let me just take each of those in turn. Let me just throw a few numbers at you. So in the UK, in the next 12 months, 
350,000 people will get diagnosed with cancer. That is 1,000 people every day. That's one person every 90 seconds. Half of us in this room during our lifetime will have a diagnosis of cancer. In the next 12 months, 14 million people on the planet will get diagnosed with cancer. I worry a lot about dementia. In the UK today, we have 850,000 people with dementia. In 2050, that number will be 2.1 million. We are going to have two cities the size of Birmingham with dementia. The average cost of caring for a dementia patient today is £32,000 a year. That's to the taxpayer. And that's despite the fact that two-thirds of the cost is borne by the relatives. So if you add that up, we are spending £26 billion a year just looking after our dementia patients. All of us who live to more than 80 years of age, one in six of us will have dementia. We've not come up with a new treatment for dementia since 2002, and that treatment is purely a symptomatic treatment that works in the first few months after diagnosis, maybe 12 months, 18 months, and then after that it stops working. We desperately need new treatments for dementia. And I don't think we're even close to having something that is effective and safe in patients. And this is an area that the industry has ploughed over the past three decades, several tens of billions of dollars of research funding. Mental health, it's a massive talking point across this university, across all universities, across societies, across the world. It's estimated that a quarter of adults during their lifetime have some sort of mental health episode. It's estimated across uh, Europe, probably 20% of people have some sort of depressive episode. At any one time, we've probably got 83 million people across Europe with some sort of mental health condition. And I heard a horrific figure recently that if you take 15-year-old girls in the UK, out of every 150, one of them will be anorexic. These are horrific figures. Aging, we've got aging societies across the planet. In the next 20 years, we are going to have a doubling in the number of pensioners with a number of health conditions. There's going to be a 180% increase in pensioners with cancer. A 180%, that's almost a triple. There's going to be a 120% increase in pensioners with diabetes, so more than a double. These are major challenges. Yeah, these are common diseases. Now, if you talk about rare diseases, across the planet, if you add up all the rare diseases, there's 7,000 rare diseases. If you add up all the patients, that's about 350 million patients across the planet. 30% of those kids do not reach the age of five. It takes anywhere between six and eight years to get a diagnosis. And would you believe it that 95% of those individuals have absolutely no treatment whatsoever? Can you imagine being a parent of a child where there is no treatment? Antimicrobial resistance. In this country, Sally Davis, you know, now head of Trinity in Cambridge, former chief medical officer. For the past five, six, seven years, she's been highlighting what a crisis we have 
in terms of we're becoming resistant to existing antibiotics. And she estimates that today, every year at the moment, about 700,000 people across the world are dying because they are resistant to existing antibiotics. In 2050, that number is estimated to be 10 million. And in the O'Neill report, which was published four or five years ago, he said that if we don't come up with a new generation of antibiotics, then by 2050, it's going to cost the planet 100 trillion in GDP. Massive challenges. Let me just share with you uh, a story from um, not a patient, but a patient's mother. So about four years ago, I gave a public lecture on, on a Sunday morning in the New Maths Institute. And at the end of this lecture, this lady came up to me and she said, Professor Bantra, my daughter died earlier this year with a brain tumor. If you want to study her brain, this is where you can get it from. And she handed me this slip of paper, and on this paper was the, her daughter's name, her date of birth, the day she died, and where her brain was put. Immediately after this, my wife came to pick me up, and I said to my wife, I've just had a complete stranger offer me the brain of her dead daughter. This is how desperate parents, carers are. We desperately need new treatments. We need more effective treatments. So you might think, well, why is he saying that? Aren't all the drugs that are out there effective? Well, in 2015, there was a publication where they looked at the treatments we had at the time for solid tumors. So at the time, we had 71 treatments. And they looked to see how much benefit these treatments provide. And the conclusion of this paper was that of the 71 treatments, the average increase in progression-free survival was 2.5 months. The average increase in overall survival was 2.1 months. And of those 71 treatments, they concluded that only 30 of them had clinically meaningful efficacy. So less than half the drugs that are out there had clinically meaningful efficacy. We need more effective treatments. We also need more affordable treatments. So again, as publication in 2014, they looked at, in the UK, in the year 2000, we had 69 treatments for cancer. Of those, 50 were cytotoxic agents. The average duration of treatment was 181 days. The average cost of the treatment was £3,000, and in the year 2000, 3000 was estimated to be about 20% of our GDP per capita. They did the same analysis in 2013, so more than a decade later. By now, we had a further 63 drugs for treating cancer. The average duration of treatment was now 262 days, so it's gone up from 181 to 292. <coughs> The average cost of the treatment was now £35,000 a year, so it's gone up from £3,000 to £35,000. And in, in 2013 14, £35,000 was estimated to be 140% of our GDP per capita. So it's gone up from 20% to 140%. And that trend, frankly, is continuing. Last year, Novartis had a drug approved by the FDA for. 
Now this is a gene therapy, but it's a single injection. And the cost of that single injection is $2.125 million. So more than $2 million for a single injection. Now even in the US, they will not be able to afford it. You know, in the UK, I guarantee the NHS will never pay for it and leave aside countries like China or India or in Africa or South America. We need more affordable drugs. And of course, we need them quickly. Tomorrow is too late for these patients. They want the drug today. We need more novel drugs. We need more effective drugs. We need more affordable drugs. And we need them quickly. The problem with the way we're doing drug discovery today, frankly, it's too costly. It's too risky and it's too slow. So again, let me just take each of those in turn. Too costly. So in 2012, Forbes did an analysis where they looked at a number of these pharmaceutical companies. They looked to see how much money they spent on R&D over a finite period. And they looked to see in that finite period how many drugs did they launch, how many did they have approved. They divided one number by the other, and they came up with an average cost of new treatment. Now, in that analysis, for AstraZeneca, the average cost of a new drug was $11.5 billion. $11.5 billion. The best in that analysis was Amgen, but even they, they were about $3.5 billion. Now, most people accept today that the average cost of a new drug is somewhere between $3 and $4 billion. Bear in mind, to run this whole university with the 39 colleges and all the divisions and all the departments and all the salaries and all the infrastructure, it's probably about two billion pounds. So that's how much it costs to launch one of these drugs. And bear in mind, many of these drugs that were launched were not truly novel drugs. Many of them are what we would call me-toos or new formulations. And that's not what we need. We need absolutely new treatments for some of these conditions. So it's too costly. It's also too risky. So again, in 2013, there was a publication where they looked at, so in the year 2002, across the world, we had 529 molecules in development for cancer. So by in development, mean, we mean that they were either in phase one studies or phase two studies or phase three studies. 529. They looked to see a decade later in 2013 what happened to those 529 molecules. And they found that 45 of them made it to the market. 95 were still in development. But 389 molecules were terminated. So we took, as a community, we took 389 molecules into the clinic, into patients, and then terminated them. Can you imagine how much money we spent on those molecules? Can you imagine how much resource and how many people's careers went into that? And can you importantly imagine how many patients were exposed to those molecules before we terminated them? This process is too risky. In the same study, they looked at if a molecule is in phase one for cancer, what's the probability it will make it to the market? The answer was 7.5%. Less than one in 10 molecules in phase one for cancer makes it to the market. 
They look to see if a molecule is in phase three for cancer. So these are the final registration studies. What's the probability it will make it to the market? The answer was 33%. Only one in three molecules in phase three for cancer makes it to the market, which is too risky. It's also too slow. A couple of my colleagues, Stefan Knapp and Michael Silcher, a few years ago published a paper. They looked to see when did we come up with data that a particular target could be useful in the lab, and then how long did it take to take that idea into the clinic? And the answer was anywhere between six years and 30 years, three zero, three decades. This process is too costly, it's too risky, and it's too slow. So why? This industry, this community employs some of the smartest people on the planet. They have access to great technologies, they have access to great collaborators, etc. Why is it so difficult? I think there's a number of reasons. And I would group, the, group them into maybe scientific <coughs> challenges and then maybe organizational challenges. So let me just take each of those in turn. Scientific. First of all, I do not think for many diseases in the clinic, we have a very good understanding of the molecular causes of cancer. Frankly, if I take a patient with schizophrenia or depression or Alzheimer's, there is nobody on the planet who can tell me the molecular causes of the phenotype in that one individual. This is a major problem. These diseases are incredibly heterogeneous. If we took 100 patients with Alzheimer's, they would all be different ages, different sex, different weight, different ethnic backgrounds, different diets, etc., etc. But importantly, their symptoms will be completely different. Some of them will have just forgotten where their keys are. Others will not even recognize their kids. Some will be aggressive, some will be depressed, some will be anxious, some will be agitated, etc. These are incredibly heterogeneous diseases. We also, for many of these diseases, we do not have good biomarkers. And by biomarkers, I mean readouts that we can use in the clinic to assess if a new molecule is effective. So if you're doing a clinical study in Alzheimer's, you can't say to the patient, oh, is your memory better today than it was last week? Or you can't say to a depressed patient, are you less depressed today than you were last month? We need better biomarkers. We all, there are also many molecules, drugs out there, we don't even know how they work. Paracetamol, acetaminophen, we've all taken it. Probably today across the planet, 100 million people took paracetamol. We do not know how paracetamol works. We don't know the mode of action, we don't know the side effects. So if you don't know how existing drugs work, how can you design better ones? And then I'm afraid animal models. Now many of us use them, some of you probably use them. I'm afraid I do not believe we will ever, ever have an animal model that truly recapitulates clinical disease. We will never have an animal model that predicts schizophrenia in the clinic or depression in the clinic or Alzheimer's in the clinic. I appreciate they have their uses. You know, we need to get a sense of some sort of in vivo activity. We need to get some sort of idea of what the side effects may be. But I tell you, just because something works in an animal model, does not mean it will work in the clinic. I have seen many things work beautifully in animal models, 
and we take them into the clinic and they do nothing. So the major scientific challenges. Then there are organizational challenges, and I touched on these at the start. At the moment, many academics, many scientists in biotech, many scientists in the pharmaceutical industry, they all work on the same few ideas, the same few targets, the same few molecular targets. And they do this in parallel and they do this in secret. They all read a publication in Nature and then they start working on it. They all read the same publications, they go to the same conferences, they take, talk to the same opinion leaders, they go back to their labs and start working on exactly the same ideas in parallel, in secret. Now we know that most of those ideas, when we translate them from the lab into the clinic, the failure rate is more than eight out of 10, nine out of 10. I've heard figures as high as 95%. 95% of our ideas from the lab do not translate into the clinic. So you can imagine if you've got 20 companies doing exactly the same thing, if one of them fails, the other 19 are likely. The way we're doing drug discovery today, we are wasting a lot of money, we're wasting a lot of people's careers, but importantly, we're exposing patients to molecules that other people or other organizations already know are destined for failure. This is the consequence of competitive science. So, major challenge. And then I also touched on reproducibility. There have been some high-profile publications from companies like Bayer and Amgen, where they've said 50, 60, 70% of academic literature, they cannot reproduce. Now, there's no point people like us getting defensive about it. We just need to do something about it. So major scientific organizational challenges. So it's very easy to identify the problem. So what's the solution? What are we going to do to crack this? So let me just share with you what we've been doing in Oxford over the past 12 years. I came back to Oxford on the 22nd of January 2008, so almost exactly 12 years. So in the past uh, 12 years, what we've been doing is maybe four things. Firstly, we've decided that we're only going to work on completely novel ideas. Novel genes, novel proteins, genes and proteins that nobody else is working on. There is not a hundred publications, etc. So we work on these. And what we do is we generate novel tools. So for each of those genes and proteins, we purify the human protein. I'm not interested in rats and mice. We build biophysical, biochemical assays. We work out the structure of that protein, we generate small molecule inhibitors, and we generate antibodies. So we work on novel genes and we generate novel tools. And we do this to drive innovation. But what we've also done is we've pooled resources to share risk. So currently we're working with nine large pharmaceutical companies. Each of these companies has given us 5 million euros of funding over a five-year period. We're also getting funding now from seven patient groups. So Alzheimer's Research UK, 
four years ago gave us 10 million pounds, and then six months ago given us another 12 million pounds. The Wellcome Trust over the past 12 years has given us close to 60 million pounds into our lab here in Ashford. We're pooling all of these resources to share risk. The third thing we do, and this is probably what makes us most unique, all of these tools that we generate, and these tools are high quality, not because we're clever, they're high quality because we're tapping into the resources, the expertise of these nine large pharmaceutical companies. We have access to their compound collections, how you develop assays, their high throughput screening, etc., etc. So what makes us unique is that these tools, which are high quality, we make them freely available. We give them away to anybody in academia, anybody in biotech, and anybody in pharma. And the reason we do that is because we believe that's the best thing we can do to facilitate science and therefore facilitate drug discovery. Now, of course, the consequence of that is, you can imagine, every academic who comes into my office wants to collaborate with us because they know we've got no secrets, we'll share all of our know-how, all of our expertise, and all of our DNTs. That transparency creates a lot of trust, which is great for collaboration, it's great for science, and it's great for drug discovery. So we're now collaborating with more than 300 academic labs all over the world. These labs take these novel tools, and then they test them in whatever they like. It could be a model for cancer, or a model of diabetes, or some rare disease, or some dementia model, or whatever. And then, of course, academics, all they care about is publishing. So they publish this data, they've taken a high-quality, novel tool, they've tested it in their assay, they publish it. This is a way of crowdsourcing science. And the fourth thing we do is that all of our data, all of our knowledge, all of our reagents, we share them with the world immediately. So we don't sit on it for 12 months while we're writing up the manuscript, because in those 12 months, there could be people out there trying to do something that we've already done. That would be a waste. So by releasing it immediately, we're trying to reduce duplication and wasting. So four things. Pool resources to share risk, work in novel areas, generate novel high-quality tools to drive innovation, make everything freely available to crowdsource science and release everything immediately to reduce duplication and wasting. Let me share with you some of the things that we're now doing in Oxford. So we've been now building lots of links with patient groups. Now patient groups are already very powerful and in future years they're going to become even more powerful. They are already telling governments where to spend their research dollars. But we're keen to work with patient groups for two reasons. One, they can help us get patient material. So I'm not interested in testing our molecules in animal models. I want to test them in cancer cells from patients or immune cells from patients. I think that's a much better way to come up with new targets for drug discovery. But also, if we generate a molecule, and I think it's going to be useful, let's say, in Huntington's disease. Now, I don't know who the best scientists on the planet are in Huntington's disease, but you can imagine this charity does. And so they will give that molecule to those respective labs to try and accelerate science. So we're getting closer links with patient groups. The second thing we're doing is 
we've built this dementia institute, and in this institute, we're focusing on completely new pathways. I'm not interested in working on amyloid, and I'm not interested in working on tau, because frankly, the global community's been doing that for 30 years, and we've done 13 or 14 phase three clinical trials in Alzheimer's, and every single one has failed. So we need to move into new areas. So we're looking at the role of microglia, we're looking at the role of inflammation, we're looking at the role of epigenetics, we're looking at the role of metabolic pathways, etc. We're trying to come up with completely new approaches to treating dementia. The third thing we're doing is we're now trying to build across the UK a national initiative to accelerate new therapeutics for multimorbidities associated with aging. So we're all aware that elderly patients don't have one disease, they normally have half a dozen diseases. There's a bit of cancer, their cardiovascular system's compromised, their kidneys are compromised, they have respiratory problems, they have frailty, etc., etc. Now we believe that there are, there are pathways that affect multiple morbidities uh, associated with aging. And so we're trying to identify targets on those pathways in an attempt to give one drug to treat all of these morbidities. This is a completely new approach. This is not something that the pharmaceutical industry is doing. This is not something that biotechs are doing. This is something that's going to be incredibly risky because it's going to involve <coughs> working with lots of different clinicians. At the moment in pharma, what happens is you come up with a drug for diabetes and a separate one for Alzheimer's and a separate one for cancer. Here we're now talking about coming up with something, but we're gonna measure lots of different readouts in a particular case. But we now have the technologies that allow us to do that. So you're now aware that there are companies like Somalogics based in Boulder, Colorado, where they can take a tiny sample of blood, and in that sample of blood, they can measure 5,000 different proteins for 200 in two years, they'll be measuring 10,000. In three years, it will be the whole 20,000. These platforms are becoming cheaper, higher throughput, higher content, and faster. Then, of course, you've got wearable devices. You know, with these wearable devices now, you can measure heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory rate, lots of other parameters, continuously, 24-7, longitudinally, non-invasively, very cheap. We can generate tens of thousands of data points on each particular patient. And then, of course, we've now got things like AI machine learning to help us pull all that data together to make sense of it. So we're trying to build this national effort. We're working with the University of Dundee because they have lots of chemistry. We're working with the Medicines Discovery Catapult in Manchester because they have access to patient groups and CROs. We're working with the University of Birmingham because they've got access to a catchment of six million patients. And we're working with the CRIC because they've got lots of cool biologists. So these four centers in Oxford are pulling this national effort together. We're also having discussions with the Wellcome Trust about generating tools for the whole of the human genome. So you're aware that in humans there's 20,000 genes, so 20,000 different proteins. Each of those proteins could be a drug target. Now, at the moment, the drugs that are out there probably hit about 
let's say a thousand of these targets. There's, if you look at what the biomedical community is working on at the moment, they're probably working on another 2,000. But there's probably 10, 12, 14,000 genes for which we have no tool. We have no protein, we have no structure, we have no inhibitor, we have no antibodies. So we're talking about how we can create an international consortium to generate tools for the whole of the human genome in an attempt to accelerate drug discovery. So let me sum up now. I think at the moment in biomedical science there is too much competition, too much secrecy, too much duplication, and too much wasting. What we're trying to do is we're trying to bring together lots of clinicians, lots of academics, lots of pharma companies, lots of patient groups, lots of funders, to work together to come up with completely new targets, new ways of treating disease in patients, new de-risk targets for treating disease. If we do this, we believe it will be good for industry, obviously, but it will also be good for patients, and it will also be good for society and the economy. What we're trying to do is to create a new ecosystem for drug discovery. An ecosystem which I hope will generate more novel drugs, more quickly, more effectively. But I hope that these drugs will also be more affordable. Now, this whole seminar series that Martin set up is about translation and humanities, etc. And I was saying to Martha over coffee that one of the things that we need our colleagues in humanities to do to help us in this regard is that we need people to write about this, to talk about it. I don't know, write poems, write plays, write books, write articles, etc. We need to get people out there to appreciate what a crisis we have in antimicrobial resistance, what a crisis we have in mental health, what a crisis we have in dementia. This is the only way we're going to start putting more focus on it. And you know, what's been amazing to me in the past, I suppose, three, four years, it's the power of celebrity. You know, if I think of David Attenborough, three years ago, nobody was really talking about plastic pollution. He does this one program, and now you've got kids in their holidays cleaning up beaches. And now everybody's talking about it. Four years ago, people weren't really talking about mental health. But then out comes Prince William and Prince Harry and Stephen Fry, and now people are talking about it. This is the power of celebrity, this is the power of storytelling, this is the power of poetry, and so we need the help of Martha, you and your colleagues. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you for bearing with us. I hope that was of interest, and I'm happy to take
and uh, I totally agree with you that the role of humanity is certainly that of telling stories, but since we are not only molecules but also stories, so stories are part of our DNA itself, we hopefully as humanity scholars also can help diagnostic and therapy as well as you know, uh, uh, a uh, documentation of it. So, Thank you so much for such an inspiring talk. And I like I never would like to ask the audience whether there are any immediate responses um, to Chas's talk. course in clinical neuroscience and you've heard the story 
many times, but no one can really tell us well, what exactly has happened. Cool. So it's, it's a great question. I mean, sort of, you know, we started working on amyloid in, let's say, the mid-90s. And so the hypothesis was that this protein amyloid accumulates in the brain, and as a consequence of this accumulation, we get uh, neurodegeneration, you get cognitive decline, you get dementia. So what everybody's been trying to do for the past three decades is either stop the synthesis of that protein, or increase its breakdown, or increase its removal from the brain, its clearance from the brain. And frankly, after 30 years, you know, we've still not got positive clinical data. I can share with you a story, and I think it was probably about 2014-15. I was at a meeting that was organized by the New York Academy, the FDA, and the NIH. And they wanted a bunch of us, I think there was about 30 of us, to think about uh, a clinical trial in Alzheimer's for prevention. So at the time, the thinking was that the treatments we'd been giving in these clinical studies, it was just too late. You know, so all these clinical trials were done when the patients demonstrated some sort of cognitive decline, and then, then after that, of course, they just spiraled down. But of course, we now know that you can detect amyloid in the brains of patients maybe 10 to 15 years before they show any symptoms. So the idea was to do a prevention trial. Now, of course, if you do a prevention trial, the trial is going to be much longer. It's going to require a lot more patients, and it's going to be a lot more expensive. So already, one of the phase three clinical studies that Lilly did cost $750 million. To do one of these prevention trials would be a multi-billion dollar experiment. But you know, the biggest challenge is then, and I believe it's fair to say even now, all the clinical trials that have been done, you know, these are expensive experiments. A lot of that data is not available to us. So, you know, either the data is not published, is either not published, or it's not published quickly enough, or it's not published in enough detail. So basically, people are doing the next experiment before they learn from the previous failures. And that's something that we need to try and change. Now, I think things are getting better. Industry is publishing more of that data. But, you know, it's, it's no good knowing that, oh, the compound didn't work. Because what you need to know is, well, what dose did you give? What exposures did you get? What were the biomarkers you used? How did you select the patients? Which centers did you do the trial? All of that sort of stuff. So there's so much detail that you need to understand and compare these studies. And that's that's the big challenge we face. You've spoken a lot about the development of science through um, open access of data and sharing resources. And I just wondered um, what your opinion was on pre-registration and how that may potentially influence um, collaboration between different industries if they know that types of studies and investigations that are being run before the data has actually been produced. So, sorry, if I, if I caught that, what you're saying is that the drug is taken to the market and, uh, 
and then you test it in lots of patients and that's when you get final approval? Is no, um, as in like before you start carrying out your studies on a drug, you pre-register your hypotheses and how you aim to carry that study out. It's something that's starting to be done in the field of psychology and it's therefore setting up the research that you aim to produce and how the exam will influence the I think that, that can only help, I mean if, if what you're saying is if I work in Lilly or Pfizer and I'm planning on doing a clinical trial in Alzheimer's, I share that protocol, I share what I intend to do, I get people in the industry, in the academic community to critique it, whatever. I think that can only help, but um, the challenge of course is that you know, a lot of these companies are competitive. And if they're working on the same target, then they're not necessarily going to want to share their trial design or details of their molecule, etc. So I'm not sure how we overcome that. Um, yeah, I was wondering um, what your advice would be to young people who haven't yet um, differentiated or specialized in any particular sector. Um, and kind of what sector do you think is uh, most ripe for, I guess, change or disruption along the pipeline um, of translation? So, I mean, the one thing I would say is that uh, I encourage all my academic colleagues to go and work in the industry um, because I think you learn so much. You know, you learn to speak their language, you understand what their issues are, what the priorities are, you grow your network, and if you do come back into academia, no doubt you will continue to work together with that industry. So I, I think I would encourage all of you youngsters, because you're all gonna live to the age of 100, and you're gonna have multiple careers, just move around, get lots of experiences, spend a bit of time in academia, or a bit of time in industry, maybe a bit of time in a charity, a bit of time with a venture capitalists or whatever, etc., etc., and understand each other's perspective, because I think the only way we're going to succeed in this game is if we break down all these silos. This is um, a team sport, and um, you know, I, I, you know, I don't like people in academia criticizing people in industry and vice versa, etc. You know, I, I genuinely believe that people in industry are trying to do the best they can, but we all have our own constraints and our own priorities, etc., etc. So we just need to understand each other's perspective, but just work together. Yeah. Yeah. Can I interrupt? Yes, of course. You talked of problem of language in education, like being able to uh, speak each other's language in a community. Like, how on the on the behalf of the humanities uh, people, yeah, how do we use it? if at all, a role of the, uh, of humanities people in industry and specifically in the uh, development uh, of new drugs and new technologies? Well, I'm not quite sure Marta has to answer that question, but let me try this way. Um, you know, I, I love working with patient groups. And um, patient groups, you know, they are just desperate for immediate. You know, they, do, they don't want to hear excuses. They don't want to hear people like me say, 
oh, it's the regulators or the hurdles are too high or they just want a drug. And they have this absolute razor sharp focus. Mm. And, um, and so I, I think, you know, it's very easy as an academic just to make excuses as long as we produce a few papers and get a few grants, it's all fine. Mm. But, you know, I, I genuinely think we are here not just to produce papers, but it is very much to translate our science, to translate our knowledge, to create benefit for patients, for society, for industry, for the economy, etc., etc. You know, we work in a very privileged environment. You know, sort of, we're surrounded by awesome people. We attract the best students and the best researchers. We have access to wonderful infrastructure. We have lots of research funding. We have great convening power. Our alumni network is global. My God, if we can't do it, then nobody else can. Yes, and this problem of culture is Western is something that very much both the sciences and the humanities share in need. Yeah. We need to do something to cooperate, to benefit people. Shall we take some more questions? Uh, I can probably forget. Yes, yes, yes. That's all right. <laughs> Sort of combined with this one, 
and more towards the actual translation and the very basic understanding of the work. Um, you mentioned that you work closely with um, patients' organizations. Um, do you actually make any effort, and I know it might not be crucial in your work, but do you actually make any effort to translate your scientific, let's call it meta-language, into uh, common words that would be understood by patients who are essentially involved and interested in the results of your work? So the first one, how do we rapidly disseminate? I mean, so we talk about our data, uh, we share our tools immediately, we publish it on our website, so that's the way we disseminate it. <coughs> In terms of the language with patient groups, you know, it's interesting, one of the things I've learned when I talk to some of these patient representatives, you know, it is incredible how much they know about the science. You know, they have read every single paper they, they can get hold of, and that's a sign of desperation. And so we don't really have to do that, to be honest. But um, the one thing I am convinced of, though, a slightly related comment is, you know, often at the moment when, for example, a patient with Parkinson's or Alzheimer's goes to see their GP, now they may see their GP, I don't know, every three months or 10 minutes or something like this, etc. You cannot expect a GP to have a very good understanding of that patient's symptoms, etc., how severe and so on. But I tell you, the people who really have a good understanding is usually their carers, often their spouses, you know, and so we need to listen to them. Translate medicine into literature and literature. 
spirituality uh, into into scientific um, visions. Um, I don't know how that would be possible, but I just want to thank you for, for, for prompting us to, to write about it and, and make people more aware of, of how vast the, um, you know, the, the questions still are, both for scientists <coughs> and for us human beings who suffer from all kinds of diseases. Well, let me just share this with you, and it's, it's around music. So uh, about three or four years ago, I, I was asked to go to a, a charity event in London where they were trying to raise money for Alzheimer's research. So this event was organized by a young musician understand that pharmacology may not have all of the answers. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you uh, for being here. I uh, look forward to welcoming you.